Let's open our Bibles together, though, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be working out of just a couple of verses here in Ephesians chapter 1 together. As you're able, let's stand once more in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear now the word of the Lord. From Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us. Lord, that you have, you have made yourself known in your word. You have made the way of salvation clear in your word. You have revealed to us our desperate need for you, our, our desperate need for a savior. And you, by your spirit, through the working of your word, have opened the way. And so, Lord, we, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your sovereign love for us. We rejoice in your great salvation and in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who lived and died and rose again, that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray by that same spirit that you would give us understanding this morning. Open our eyes. Open our ears, open our hearts to receive from you, producing us a right response to you. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we are, we're in a short six-week little mini-series on a biblical view of salvation. What is it that the Bible actually teaches about salvation? How it works? How it is that someone is saved? And, and the goal is not just to look at the doctrine of salvation. Understanding it, of course, is one of the goals. But the ultimate goal really is that we would see our Savior. That we would see Him more clearly. There, there's a difference between those two things. Understanding the doctrine of salvation... And seeing the Savior. The, the Savior is a person. Salvation is just is that gift, that, that blessing that he gives. And so it would be wrong for us to, to look at salvation without looking at him. And, and our prayer is that, that God by his spirit would cause us to see Christ as we study these things. Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 We've made reference to each of the last two weeks as we have begun to look into this series on the doctrines of grace, a statement that's repeated a number of times in Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Savior. It's His possession. If, if anyone finds themselves in, in possession of this salvation, it's not because they got all their ducks in a row and just understood it perfectly. 
It's not because they finally unlocked the code and figured out how it worked. If any man, woman, boy, or girl is in possession of this salvation, it is for one reason only. God gave it. God saves sinners by his grace, for his glory. Sinners do not save sinners, no matter how smart they are. No matter how well-intentioned they consider themselves to be. And, And as we saw last week, as we looked at the desperate, sinful condition of Humanity. There has been a total sinful devastation in each one of us. Every, every human being, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that has ever been born. To the extent that we are from birth totally depraved, twisted by sin. No moral ability to help ourselves in our condition. And in fact, no desire to do so. No desire to seek God. No desire to love God. No desire to obey God. All of the human race, every person that has ever lived outside of Christ is completely and thoroughly corrupted by sin. Every single aspect of us affected by, infected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our attitudes, our emotions. And we are totally incapable of changing that on our own. Apart from God's initiative, apart from God's work in us, because we're dead. That's what the scripture tells us. We're dead in sin. We are in the total bondage of slavery to sin and in sin. We are children of wrath like all of mankind. We are under God's judgment and God's condemnation. And when we understand that, as we saw last week, when we understand Just how guilty we are. When we understand just how unworthy we are of of kindness from God. Much less of salvation. When we understand how helpless and hopeless our situation really was. It is then. it It is only then that we see just how glorious God's salvation is. Just how kind God is. Just how merciful God is. Just how powerful God is. It's it's then that we understand what salvation really means. Uh, Imagine you left here today and you went to lunch. I'm in danger by even saying that of getting your minds thinking about lunch the rest of the morning. And you just kind of tune me out. Imagine you left here and you're approached by a stranger. Someone you've never met. And he comes up to you, not in a creepy way. And he comes up to you and he says, you don't know me, but I know you. I've been keeping an eye, in fact, on your parents. I've been watching them, although they didn't know me. And before you were ever born, I made a decision about you. I chose you. Could have been anyone in the world, but I chose you specifically. I'm going to give to you today a hundred million dollars. I'm going to to give to you a mansion. I will will build it for you wherever you want to live. That's fine. Any cars you want, anything you want, it's yours. For the rest of your life, your wish is my command. Anything you want. It's not because of anything you've done. I picked you. I, I loved you before you were ever born. And I've just chosen you to receive this blessing. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But this stranger has chosen to bless you beyond your wildest imagination, beyond your wildest dreams. How would you respond to that? Would you, would you argue with him and say, you really should have done this for everyone, not just for me? 
That's not really fair. Everyone deserves a shot at this blessing that you're giving me, as if he owed it to anybody in the world. Or would you get kind of puffed up and go, there's something very, very special about me, clearly. (laughs) Obviously, this man recognizes I'm a big deal. And it's good that someone saw it, finally. I'm just the right kind of person somehow. I deserve this. I'm owed this. Well, I hope you wouldn't respond in either one of those ways. How would you respond with great rejoicing? How could we even imagine a gift like that to be given to us for no reason at all, except the good pleasure of the giver? This is what the doctrine of sovereign election does for us if we understand it. It is what it does for us. It causes us to rejoice greatly, to glorify the God of salvation. That's what it does for us. If we understand it correctly, when we understand that God the Father Almighty has chosen you from eternity past, what could, it, what could it do in your heart except cause you to respond to him with gratitude? Cause you to respond to him with, with worship and praise, just overflowing out of your heart. And so as we look this morning at the doctrine of election, that, that's the goal. It's to help us see God. It's to help us see how good he is, how gracious he is, how kind he is. How kind he has been, Christian, to you. And the second part of that goal is that we would respond to him rightly because of that. We would respond appropriately to him and to his grace and to his work of salvation That because he has chosen us in eternity past, that our hearts would well up with extravagant praise to him. Let's talk first as we look here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 about the nature of election. What exactly is it? Let's read those verses together again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. If you look down just a few more verses to verse 11, we read this. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Hear that language Paul is using. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him. Verse 5, the father predestined us for adoption. Verse 11 again, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. According to to the Apostle Paul here, in, in clear words, God the Father chose, predestined, specific people to save, specific people to adopt into his family. And this, this biblical word group for this, for, for election, it's words like elect, election, chosen, predestined. The words that the Bible uses for that occur 38 times in the New Testament. 
Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we see specific reference to God the Father electing, God the Father choosing someone to be saved. The biblical authors were not afraid to talk about this. They were not ashamed to talk about this. They were not scandalized to talk about it. And in fact, they considered it foundational to a proper understanding of the gospel. What has God done in salvation? Well, a centerpiece to that, according to the biblical authors, is God's choosing. God's electing love. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. There it is again. God the Father predestined certain people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. In order that, Paul says, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul, in in Romans chapter 9 then. Continuing on with this thought that, he, that he's building on from chapter 8, he speaks of Jacob and Esau as an illustration of this. Just so we don't misunderstand what Paul's saying when he says these words. And he says of them this in, in Romans chapter 9 verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, good or evil, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who called She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's just two of many examples throughout the New Testament. It's not hard to understand. Paul's using clear language here. Paul's explaining himself in such a way as to not let us wiggle out of what he's really saying. These concepts, this doctrine, it is not unclear, it is not hard to understand. The meaning is right there in the words. The word chose in Greek means chose. The word elect means elect, to pick, to choose. The word predestined means to determine ahead of time. Now, technically speaking, the word predestined is a broader meaning than those other two words are. It includes election for salvation on the one hand, and it includes reprobation on the other hand. In other words, God God both elects certain people to be saved, and reprobation is the idea that God passes over over other people. Right? We see this in the Old Testament. God elects Israel as his chosen people, and he passes over who? Literally everyone else on the face of the earth. That's these two concepts. And that carries right through to the New Testament. Basically though, predestination, election, God's choosing, they're all synonyms when we see these words in scripture. And every Christian believes in election and predestination. They have to because both words appear in the Bible a lot. So we cannot throw these words, I don't believe in that. Well, you should, because the Bible uses that word a lot. So we shouldn't be afraid of those words. We can't reject them. We mustn't ignore them. We should embrace them. And even the most committed Arminian believes in them. They believe in election. They have to, because the Bible talks about it a lot. So you have to, 
you have to at least accept that, that Scripture talks like this. The question, though, is this. How does it work? That's where the disagreement comes. How does it work? Does God really choose certain people and pass over other people? Why does God do that? Is it fair that God does that? Does God have the right to do that? On what basis does God do that? That's the issue. That's the question. We see here in this passage the timing of of all of this. When did God elect us? What's the timing of election? Ephesians chapter 1 again, verse 4. Even as he, that's speaking of God the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So God the Father chose specific people when? Paul says it's before the foundation of the world. In other words, Christian, God's choosing of you to be his own took place not just before you were ever born, but before creation, before time even began. And again, all Christians have to believe this because the Bible says it plainly. The Bible says it clearly. But the question is, why? Why did God choose certain people and not others? And there have been two historical Christian answers to that question. One is called conditional election. That would be the Arminian view. The second would be called unconditional election. That is the Reformed view. And again, all Christians believe in election. All Christians must believe in election because it's a Bible word. It's a Bible concept. The Bible says it. The question is, though, and the dividing line comes, is it conditional or is it unconditional? So what does conditional election mean? It means this. In eternity past, before there was time, again, we all have to agree on that. Scripture's clear. That's when it happened. In eternity past, before there was time, God looked through the corridors of time into the future and he saw all the people that would choose him of their own accord. In other words, God, before he created anything, before time even existed, he looked into 1994 and he saw young Jason Gingrich with his terrible haircut and weird 90s clothes as a senior in high school and God saw that. As he, as he peered into the future, what God saw about me was, as a senior in high school, I will put my trust in Christ. Now, based on that information... Based on the information God gathered by looking into 1994, before he created anything, before there was time, God the Father, based on what he learned about me from that, retroactively elected me. That's conditional election. That's the view taught by Jacob Arminius, who we heard about a couple weeks ago. It's the view taught by his followers. It's the view taught by many, many churches today. The Father's choice is not free. It is conditioned. It is conditioned on our choice of him. So our choice is free. God's choice is not free. God's choice is dependent on us or conditional. Now, I hope even hearing that explained, you're like, well, that's not good. That's not a that doesn't sound right. I hope you're starting to pick up. There are some major, major problems with that, biblically and theologically. Just because it's the predominant view of American churches doesn't mean it's not wrong. Doesn't mean there's not a problem with it. If election is conditioned on our choosing God, on my choice, on your choice, 
And then, friends, no one would be elect. Because no one would choose God. Sinful humans would never, ever choose him. Isn't that what we saw last week? <coughs> in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air... The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of humanity, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There it is. All people. Before God regenerates us, before God makes us alive, before God saves us, are dead in sin. Spiritually and morally dead, and a dead person can't choose anything. We could take a field trip right now to Maple Grove Cemetery, and we could stand and boldly proclaim to all who would hear in those graves, I hold in my hand the elixir of life. Take and drink and live. And we'll have how many takers? Well, none. Dead people can't do that. They don't get to make a choice. They don't get to, they don't get to do that. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's not hard to understand what Paul's driving at there. It's just shocking. No one seeks God. People may be seeking spiritual things. That's certainly true. But that's certainly true. That's why the supernatural is so popular in our day. Things like, like ghosts and, and all these kind of things are so wildly popular in our society. But according to scripture, no one is seeking the true and living God, the God of the Bible. There's not one single unregenerate sinner in all of human history who has sought after God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot submit. We cannot obey. We cannot please God. To choose God would be to do what? To submit. To obey. And we're told very clearly here in Romans 8, we cannot do it. To choose God would be pleasing to God. And we are told we can't do it. We can't please God. We can't do it because our natural mind is hostile towards him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's every single person in their natural state. They cannot, they will not, they could never accept the things of God. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 12, a bad tree does not bear good fruit. It never happens. So the Bible shows us clearly the problem goes right to our roots. We are, we're not just bad trees, we're the wrong kind of tree entirely. We need to be made new if we're going to bear good fruit, including the good fruit of belief, including the good fruit of faith, including the good fruit of choosing and so if God's choosing of me is dependent on me, if it is dependent and based on my choosing of him, I am in a lot of trouble. Because I would never choose him. And my friend, 
Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, neither would you. Another problem with this view is that the Bible does not teach that God chose us before because we chose him. It teaches the opposite, explicitly teaches the opposite. Romans chapter 9, we just read a portion of that a moment ago, speaking of Jacob and Esau. We read, as, as we read, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now listen to what Paul says here as he goes on in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have, have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends, Paul says, not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. What is it? It depends, not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. What's the it? Well, the it is election. It's God's choosing. That's what Paul's talking about here. In other words, if we just plug those words in then into that statement, God's choosing for salvation depends not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's choosing of us has nothing to do with our choosing of him on the front end. It can't because that would be a work. The scripture says it's not because of works. That's why Paul says in verse 11 that God's choosing was of Jacob and Esau before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad. God's choosing of Jacob was based not on something he learned about Jacob. Not on something he foresaw in Jacob by looking through the corridor of time. If that's what Paul's saying, this statement's meaningless. In fact, the statement's false. If Paul says he chose Jacob, not Esau, before they were born, did nothing good or evil, but because of his good purpose and election, Paul's not really being honest with us if it's really because God saw something in Jacob that was really, really good that he didn't see in Esau. Paul's not being confusing when he says that it is not based on anything about them, either good or bad. It's simply because God can choose whoever God wants to choose, and he can pass over whoever he wants to pass over. There's a third major problem with the view of conditional election. If God chose us because we first chose him, then who's really doing the choosing here? Who's the one whose choice really matters? If we choose God, Paul's logic in Ephesians chapter 1, it doesn't make any sense. Paul, Paul is exhorting the, the Ephesian believers to praise the Father because of his work in choosing and saving them. So imagine Paul saying here, let's all praise the Father together because we chose him. Well, that doesn't make a great hymn. Does it? To just sing to God about our choosing of him and how smart we were and how we figured it all out. It doesn't make any sense. What does he say? We should praise the Father because he chose us. Conditional election then, it robs the word of election of any meaning. That word is meaningless if it's conditional. 
What's the point of even talking about it? What's the point of Paul ever bringing it up? Election doesn't mean anything. James Montgomery Boyce says in that view, God does not preordain an individual to anything. The individual actually ordains himself. Well, what could be farther from the truth than that? What is unconditional election? It's a very simple view. It says, because the will of man is utterly dead, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, Romans 9, because the will of man is in a state of rebellion, because the will of man in that rebellion and death and bondage to sin is unable to choose God, God the Father, motivated motivated by grace, and for his glory, he must be the one. He must be the one to do the choosing. He must be the one to exercise his sovereign will to save. And so in our falling, fallen state, out of the mass of all of fallen humanity, in mercy, God made an eternal distinguishing choice. And he reached down into the mass of all of humanity and he picked us up and made us alive. And he saved us. It's not because of something he saw in us, scripture says. It's because he's a God of grace. Because he's a God of love. Because he's a God of mercy. And before the foundation of the world, he set his saving affection on specific individuals. He chose us, according to scripture, because of his own sovereign good purposes. And without that, none of us would be saved. Not, not one soul would be saved. <coughs> so the, the central question is, who gets the glory and salvation? Who, who receives the glory? In, in the conditional election view, man does part of the work. We must choose God, and he in turn responds to our choice. So in this view, God did the same 99% for every human that has ever lived. It's just that 1% that differentiates between who's saved and who's not. Well, if that's the case, it's that 1% that's decisive. It's not the 99% God did for everyone that makes the difference. Why, why, why are you saved and your neighbor's not? That 1%. Some 1% I did. He reaches down to everyone, and it's just those who reach up to him who are saved. If that's true, friends, man gets a share in the glory. We play a part. In unconditional election, God does all the work. He must reach down and save us. We cannot reach out to him. We cannot choose him. Not on the front end. He must choose us. He must make us alive. He must draw us to himself. And then, and only then, After he has made us alive, we freely choose him and follow him. God gets all the glory. Man gets none of it. Now, of course, we must choose him. We must follow him. We are commanded to bow our knee before him, to repent of our sin, to come to Christ, to submit to him. But that can only happen once the dead person's been made alive. Is election fair? That's the question. It's the question that always comes up. It's the question Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9 that we just read moments ago. Is it unfair 
that God saves some and passes over others. If you were sitting in that restaurant this morning and it, that, I, that I mentioned where the stranger came up and gave you that, if you were sitting there and you actually overheard that conversation going on at the table beside you, would you have any grounds whatsoever to stand up and say to that man, rage in his face and say, that is not fair? Well, of course not. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't owe anybody anything. That's Paul's argument. Paul, Paul anticipates this question. And this, by the way, is how we know he's really saying what it sounds like he's saying. He's really saying God chooses some and he doesn't choose others and he doesn't owe you an explanation. And we go, well, how can that be? Is that really what Paul's saying? Well, yes, it is. Because if it wasn't what he was saying, when someone says, is that unjust? Paul would have said, oh, no, friend, you misunderstand. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And then he would explain to us how it's all up to our free will. But that's not what Paul does, is it? It's not how he responds. Paul knows that to our fallen human reasoning, the doctrine of sovereign election will be scandalous. That's why he brings these two arguments up. Argument one, that's not fair. Argument two is related to it that he brings up in Romans chapter nine. Well, what's the point? Just this fatalistic, deterministic, how can God judge anybody then if God's the one who chooses? That's how we know Paul's really saying something that scandalizes us. Our gut reaction to this is to cry out, that is not fair. That is not fair. And so if your doctrine of salvation is one that unbelievers hear and go, sounds fair then you don't have the biblical doctrine of salvation because that is not the reaction Paul got from the doctrine of salvation. The reaction he got was, that's not fair. That's the biblical view of salvation. Romans chapter nine, again, that we just read part of. God's choosing Jacob over Esau. And Paul has just said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Quoting God. Verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who could resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul gives us no wiggle room here. He does not allow us to misunderstand him unless we are going to do so willfully. He is perfectly clear. And his answer to the accusation of, that's not fair. That does not sit right with me. Is to look the person in the eye and say, who exactly do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. You are not God. You do not understand everything. Don't you trust him? Don't you know that God is good? Don't you know that he's faithful? Whatever God does, and he can do whatever he wants to do, whatever he does, we can know this one thing. It's good. It's right. It is just. It is beautiful. We need not fear that our God will act capriciously, that he will act on a whim, that he will do wrong by our loved one or by us. We need not have that fear. He says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's not unfair, Paul says. Here's Paul's answer. It's not unfair because it's not possible for mercy to be fair, to be unfair. It's not possible for mercy and compassion to be unfair. Mercy by its very nature is undeserved. So whether you give it or whether you withhold it, you haven't wronged anyone. Or it wouldn't be mercy. It would just be what you're owed. That's what Paul says. It's impossible for mercy to be unfair. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. He, he just used the example of Pharaoh and he, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose. I raised you up, Pharaoh, to make my glory known in you, in the world. Well, what, how did God do that with Pharaoh? He did it by crushing him. He did it as we read the account of, of the Exodus by hardening his heart. And that's why Paul says, he includes this, not just I'll have mercy on whomever I, I'll have mercy, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And God is not unjust in that. God doesn't owe anyone anything. God doesn't owe anyone anything except judgment. That's what God owes. That's it. He owes judgment. And so he's free to have mercy on whomever he wants. And he does not have to explain himself. As we hear that, let me just ask you this question. Does that bother you? Does that offend you? Does that make you mad? Do you instinctively recoil from that? You just need to know that you're not recoiling from the words of a man here. This isn't my theology. It's not John Calvin's theology. It's not even Paul's theology. This is the word of God. Infallible. Pure. Glorious. We don't get to tamper with, twist, or reject the word of God just because it offends our human sensitivities. We don't get to throw it out just because we can't wrap our minds around it. A biblical view of election will cause the unbeliever to say that's not fair. But what's fair anyway? Does the Bible say that God is fair? No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't say God is fair. The Bible says God is just. And the Bible says God is merciful. 
If God were fair, every person that ever lived would spend all of eternity in hell. That's fair. That's the paycheck our life has earned. That's the paycheck our sin has earned. But God in his incredible kindness and mercy decides to choose some for salvation for his own glory. It has nothing to do with them or their worthiness. It is entirely rooted in the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. It it is not as though the vast throng of all humanity has been desiring God. Desiring God's kingdom. It's not as if they're running towards heaven as fast as they can, pounding on the, on the gate door and saying, please let me in. Please, God, please let me in. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to worship you. And then God from the inside says, no, you can't come. I didn't choose you. It's this, that among this vast throng of humanity, they are not running to God. They are running from God. Every human who has ever lived running as fast as possible away from God and towards the cliff. Saying to God, not I want you, not please accept me, saying to God, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. I want to be my own God. How dare you presume to claim to be God in my life? And among that vast throng of all of rebellious humanity, running away from God, cursing God, shaking their fist in his face, running towards sure and certain destruction as fast as they can, God reaches down and he says, I'm going to save you. And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to save you. And it's not because I'm seeing good in you. I'm not seeing good in you. I'm seeing evil in you. I'm seeing rebellion and hatred and enmity in you. It's not because you're good. It's because I'm good. It's because I've set my saving love on you. Friends, that is not a lack of fairness. That is mercy. That is love. That is grace. The Bible is not unclear. It issues no apologies. It just puts it out there. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You can recoil against that. But it's the clear statement of scripture. It all comes down to the choice of God. You can come up with a hundred objections and arguments. But scripture is not being obtuse and is not mincing words. It is perfectly, indisputably clear. Election rests on God's sovereign purposes to the praise of his glorious grace. And when we see it, when we see God's goodness and grace and kindness in salvation, when we realize that our salvation is all of grace, that it's not based on our worthiness or our actions, that it is not based on us, but wholly on God who has mercy, it produces in the Christian worship and joy and steadfastness and confidence and boldness. All the things that, that we desire, all the fruit of the Spirit is produced when we understand what God has done for us. And you might ask yourself, well, how do I know I'm one of them? How do I know if I've received mercy from God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is simple. 
If you want to be a recipient of the mercy of God, you ask for it. You ask. If you call on him for mercy, he will give it to you. Those whom he has chosen to receive his mercy are the same group of people who come to him for mercy. So come. So come to him for mercy. That loved one that you, that you think about and you worry about, that loved one that, that this teaching in scripture is offensive to you because you're thinking about them and what does it mean? Call them to come to him. Call them to come to him for mercy. To come to him for grace. To run to the cross of Christ. Put your hope in him for salvation alone. And if you do that, you will show yourself to be one of the elect. On this side of eternity, we are not called to to ceaselessly speculate about who is and who is not. We are called to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about God's eternal actions. Bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will show yourself to be one of his elect. When, when I was growing up, we heard many hours of what's called a prairie home companion. A guy named Garrison Keeler told stories of a fictional town that he said he grew up in, Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. Keeler wrote about his childhood experience of being involved in backyard baseball games. And here's what he says. Captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher. Someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits the ball. They chose the last ones two at a time because they hardly mattered. And it really makes no difference. Sometimes I would go as high as the sixth choice, but usually lower. But just once. Just once, I would like someone to pick me first and to say, him, I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, you, come on. But I was never chosen with much enthusiasm. Believers, here's why this matters. Oh, and here's the joy. And here's the peace. And here's the hope. The reality is this, and think about it. God chose you with great enthusiasm from the start. What could be better than that? One last time, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Christian, he chose you. He made you his own for his glory. He was glorified in choosing you. In love, he predestined you for adoption with great enthusiasm. And again, here's the wonderful thing. All who come to him for salvation will find it in him. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need not live with vain fear. 
We need not live with vain speculation. We need not live filled with doubts and unbelief. If you have come to Christ, if you are trusting in him, you are his chosen people. Proven by your coming to him. Hear now the good news from Jesus himself in John chapter 6 verse 37. All, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the promise. That's the hope given to the Son by the Father and kept by the Father and the Son for the glory of God, for our own eternal joy. What could be better than that? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Lord, I, I, I confess that for many it's difficult. It's difficult to, to understand. It's difficult to to accept for some. Lord, I pray by your spirit you would cause us to, to see the glory in your great salvation. Lord, that this would not be a matter for fighting here at Maple Grove Church. It would not be a matter for division. It would be a matter for great joy. For, for a worshipful overflow from our hearts to you, our saving God. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us and through us. We pray that the gospel we preach would glorify you alone. We pray, Lord, that, that our lives will be transformed, that, that, that this gospel <coughs> would not be academic to us, but would be life and breath. Pray that these truths would motivate us to, to high and holy living. I pray that these truths would motivate us to great and overflowing mercy. I pray that these truths would overflow in us in humility, that we would serve one another as serving your own children whom you love and have chosen. I pray that, that these truths would produce in us boldness and courage. As we know, Lord, that you have made us your own and none can take us from your hand, but we also know, Lord, that, that even in this dark world, that you have a chosen people, that you have chosen to work through the means of prayer, that you have chosen to work through the means of the proclamation of the gospel. We pray that these truths would motivate us to prayer and proclamation. Lord, we thank you for, for the glories here. We pray, Lord, that as your spirit applies these truths to our lives, that would bear good fruit in us and through us for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.